Welcome to Walking with Freya, a journey through special needs parenting. This podcast is a place for parents and caregivers of children with special needs to share stories, the very real struggles and challenges we face, along with the inevitable love and joy these children have brought into our lives. This is a place for unapologetic honesty, well-intentioned laughter, and endless support. A safe place for us to learn, share, discuss, and help each other navigate this often unexpected journey. Be kind, be supportive, and when you can, keep the humor. My name is Annie, and welcome to Walking with Freya. Hey everyone, welcome back. Sorry that I missed getting the episode out last week. I've been traveling and visiting family and didn't quite get it all done before I left. So thanks for hanging in there. I'm sure it was with bated breath. But uh, yeah, so this episode is a week late and uh, we'll get back on the every two week schedule. I am currently in my parents' closet because I'm at my parents' house. So um, they also have a nice closet for recording. So here we are. But this episode today is not an episode with me. It is, well, I mean, I'm in it, but um, I did an interview with someone who was very dear to me. It is Freya's preschool speech and language pathologist. And we talk about a lot of things. We talk about Freya and our own experience and relationship a little bit, but we we talk a lot about uh, the ways that she implements therapy and how seeing sign language for the first time inspired her to even move into the world of speech and language. We talk about what makes a good therapist, how parents can either help or hinder their child's progress, and she also shares a few funny stories of what kids say when they are learning how to talk. An important part of the conversation, I feel, uh, is when we discuss screen time. And it's not just about children, but also the parents. Angela introduces me to a phrase, which I think explains a lot, disengaged but present parenting. This is something that most of us, if not all, do at some time or another. And I definitely believe that screens are are driving us more into this realm of parenting. We talk about the detriments that this can cause to our child's development. This conversation is an important one for any parent who wants to understand how to better help their child progress in their development of language and communication. I cut this interview off towards the end, partly because it was such a long talk. We have developed our own relationship over the years, so the conversation flows easily. But I also cut it off in the interest of ending on a poignant story. I like to, uh, I like to end on a really powerful note. And then this leads us into a poem that was written by Angela. Yes, I got Angela into my closet and she read for all of us a poem that she has written about her experience in working with stroke victims. It's a very touching and beautiful poem. The first time I heard it was at our monthly poetry night. She got up and performed it and it made me cry. It was very beautiful. So I hope that you stay here through the end so you can hear her poem. The part of the conversation that I cut off was a talk about resources and the importance of knowing your parent rights. One of the resources Angela mentioned was ASHA, American Speech Language Hearing Association. 
and they can be found at asha.org. She recommended that parents speak to other parents in the community to learn about possible therapies or therapists or schools that would be good for your child. You can also obtain a copy of your parents' rights from your local school or your regional center, and you should know that you have the right to refuse any service any service, or request more services. In doing my own brief search regarding parent rights and special education, I found what looks like it could be a really great site. It's at understandingspecialeducation.com. There's an abundance of information and links on this site, so check it out if you are wondering where to start or if you have any questions. It looks like it'd be a good place to go to. Also, for those of you who don't already know, I do another podcast with a friend of mine. This is a shout out to Amy Day, and our podcast is Mend Life at the Seams. I'm bringing this up because I referenced one of our episodes in this podcast, so I thought I would let you know what episode and where to find it. So episodes 37 and 38 of Mend are relevant to the discussion on screen time and its effects on children. Episode 37 was an interview with a Waldorf educator and child psychologist, and episode 38 is kind of our wrap-up, our discussion on that talk. You can find both of these episodes on whatever podcast app you use to listen to this podcast, or you can go check out mendpodcast.com, that's M-E-N-D podcast.com, if you're interested in learning more. In this world where interactions between your child and other people can be questionable and stressful, it is such a blessing to have therapists and teachers like Angela, someone who genuinely loves and cares for the kids and adults that she works with. I have learned so much about not only my daughter's speech, but also about navigating the world of special needs and being an influential advocate for my daughter. I hope that you all enjoy this conversation and find wisdom, knowledge, and inspiration in her story. And as always, please don't forget, if you haven't already, to subscribe to the podcast, rate and review it, and share it with your friends. And again, please stay till the end to hear some beautiful poetry written by a beautiful soul. Thank you all for being here. I am here with Miss Angela, a woman that I met a few years ago and had the pleasure of working with for a few years. She was Freya's speech and language therapist. And um, yeah, so why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself and you can get more specific about what it is that you do and who you work with. Sure. So yeah, my name is Angela Cotherman and I'm a speech and language pathologist or therapist. Um, usually it's, it tends to be a mouthful with speech language pathologist and people just kind of look at you with, with a nod shake, like, oh, okay. So I'm a speech language therapist. Um, I've been practicing for about seven years and I originally was a business administration major and I wanted to become a cosmetologist and a massage therapist and I went directly into college as a business administration major and I hated it. I hated it. And I wasn't succeeding in school and I saw sign language and I thought what a beautiful language. 
and I wanted to take that course, so I did. And I also took a intro to communications disorders class. And huh. as a business major, I just it opened a whole new world for me. And by the end of that semester, I changed my major, and haven't regretted it a day since. Nice. So, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that's how you got into it. Did you have anybody that was kind of guiding you in that way? Like, did you have a teacher or someone that? Was working in that field? Um, you know, when I took my intro to communications disorders class, I had met one of my main um, supervisors. Um, obviously, she wouldn't become my clinical supervisor until a few years later, but just the way that she taught the information and the passion that she had for it, um, it really it really sparked a fire in me to be more interested in a topic in school. And, um, yeah, so her name's Linda Coyle. She was definitely one of my main inspirations in college. And um, when I first met her, I was a little wild in college. <laughs> and she knew it. I, I actually knew her daughter. Um, and we we went to high school together, so... We would run into each other at parties a lot. <laughs> so she knew, you know, I was kind of in a transition period too. And uh, so, yeah, she, she kind of saw me grow and really dive into school a little bit more and get more serious. And, um, you know, she fought for me a couple of times too to keep me in the program later when, um, you know, certain things came up and helped me get more involved in our student organizations. And so, yeah, she was a big inspiration to me. The other inspiration was my sign language teacher. Um, so those two kind of concurrently um, introduced me to sign language and communication disorders. And I think that's really interesting that you were inspired by sign language to go into... Well, I guess speech and language, but I'm just thinking of just the speech. Like. Yeah, it was interesting because I I think maybe I saw somebody signing one day and I just thought, wow, what a beautifully expressive language. I want to know uh -huh. more about that. And that was all I knew. And I thought, okay, well, sign language, Let's. I want to take that course. And it was offered under communication disorders department and I thought, what is that? And, and it just opened the door for me. I never even knew what a speech-language pathologist was. Huh. That's so, kind of my story into how I got involved in speech-language therapy. And uh -huh. Right when I got out of college, um, I moved out to California. And it was an awkward time in the school year. It was October. So the school years, you know, had already started. And to find a job at that awkward time of the school year it just wasn't falling into place for me so um, I looked into working at a skilled nursing facility and they needed me they were able to provide me with some of the supervision that I needed right out of um, school and uh, they were willing to pay me quite well um, so I thought okay I'll, I'll do that and during my school years I'd always thought I'd, I wanted to work with the kids from, from, you know, the time I declared my major. But during my externship, I worked at the VA hospital back in Wyoming, and 
again, it just opened my eyes to adult therapy and working with men who have had strokes and traumatic brain injury and really looking at the brain function and neurology and psychology tied tied into all of that. So that got me intrigued into adult therapy and cognitive rehabilitation. So um, I thought, okay, let's do the nursing home for a while. And I, I said, you know, five years. Okay, let's do this. And, you know, became really passionate about that, especially the stroke rehab and the cognitive rehab aspect of it. Um, <clears throat> and then a, a couple years into the nursing home setting, I just thought, gosh, I miss my kids so much. I miss the laughter and the growth and the development and the progress. And, you know, in our nursing home, we would send people home often, but a lot of times they're long-term residents. Um, you know, so you don't get really, you don't really get to see that carryover to the home, um, or you're more at end of life, um, you know, comfort measures. So, um, I just, I miss the kids. So a few years into it, I went back to the school districts and, uh, I started working with the County Office of Education for a while and would go to kind of outlying school districts here and there, um, kind of a, uh, a, a car or a travel speech therapist, you know, you'd get all, you'd get your bags all packed with your toys and your cards and, and kind of go from school to school. So kind of got my, my feet wet with the school districts, um, and then at that time, I, I actually went back to the nursing home and was doing both at the same time. So I would do full-time at the school districts during the weekdays and then three days a week at the nursing home. So it was really interesting time in my life where, you know, in the morning I could be working with a three-year-old and by the evening I was working with a 93-year-old and really kind of code-switching my therapy style and my bag of knowledge and being able to do that successfully really really pushed me and helped me grow and be a better therapist to have this like circle of life therapy mm -hmm. um, yeah I imagine and, that and that was one of my questions because I know that you work with older people and with kids and I imagine that there must be a really different approach you know, I think the way you approach them is the key, um, but really they're all just people mm -hmm. and they all just want to be listened to and heard. You make me cry. <laughs> Angela knows that my, and I don't know if you guys know, but my dad had a debilitating stroke about six years ago and his communication is very limited. So... She works with the two kinds of people that I have in my life that I'm very close to. You know, of course I approach them differently with my knowledge of a disorder in a child versus, you know, a neurological impairment of a stroke where they've, they've had a chance to develop all that language. They're 60. I mean, their, their language and their speech is developed and their cognitive skills are developed, but looking at a child who's still growing and still developing those strategies, um, 
that's where I kind of look at it a little differently and, and approach, okay, here's an adult who's complete independence and developed cognitive functioning is no longer working versus a child who, you know, I just might need to scaffold or prompt a little bit for them to kind of reach that next level, um, you know, versus teaching an adult how to do these things as, as a child over again. Mm -hmm. um, so it is a little different, but I like to really think of it more as a whole, which I think you've helped me do a lot, just knowing you mm. and um, your family and and kind of developing my style based on um, based on the person, based on the family, based on the child or the adult. I uh, read that poem that I wrote about Freya. I read that on this podcast towards the beginning, and I remember reading that the first time at poetry night and you were there and you just when I came down you just came up to me and hugged me and you were crying and oh my you God. told me the that next day a, that that was kind of a yeah I mind you know, and that was, your... I, I've read that poem quite a few times I've listened to it a few times both at poetry night and on the podcast yeah, and, and I feel like that's why we have such a, a bond is because I feel like you really shifted the way I approach my whole career. Wow. Seriously. Um, you know, and, and reading that poem and hearing you, at, you know, because when I first met you, I think I was only maybe a year or two years into school-based speech mm -hmm. and language therapy and you know I'm I'm a super nerd when it comes to like diagnostics <laughs> and clinical skills and standardized assessments and you know I'm I'm a diagnostician at heart you know I I I do that I I am presented with a client and I have to measure them based on these certain checklists and standardizations and then you know, in return, sit across the table from a parent or a family member and tell them where their family member is at developmentally mm -hmm. or cognitively. And then, you know, project where we're going to take them. So when I heard you read that poem, it just shifted everything. And I thought, um, you know, when you talk about these sterile rooms and this person coming into the room who doesn't know anything about your child other than these numbers or tests and then walking away leaving a parent or a caregiver feeling just so lost and this all, all this medical jargon and terminology is thrown mm -hmm. at this person who has no knowledge and then that's it yeah and I thought, oh my gosh, you know, I am one of those people who sits across the table with a report telling parents that, you know, your child has a hard time doing this and your child qualifies for special ed because, or your child falls in the nth percentile, you know. So after I heard you read that poem, it was like, oh my gosh, I'm that person across the table. 
What can I do to make sure that I am the educator, therapist, slash person that this parent feels comfortable with and and not that person who's, you know, this sterile white coat individual across the table who gives you a, a report and walks away. Um, you know, I knew from that moment I did not want that to be me. <laughs> and um, so it changed, it changed a lot for me. Um, the way I communicate with parents, the way I give them that information, um, because I think it can really mean the difference between feeling, feeling supported by your therapist or your caregivers or your doctors versus not and feeling completely alone. Yeah, so I think you're right. It, poetry night's Thursday and you, <laughs> we had our session Friday morning. Yeah. And I had never been to poetry night. That right. was my first night and... Uh, and I had just had surgery the day before my hernia, and I was like, high on pain meds. Oh my god, I didn't know that. <laughs> well, and I had no idea what poetry night was, and I know we had talked about it during our therapy sessions, kind of in between our, our little therapy tasks, and you know, when you said, yeah, you should come, and, and then I show up, and you read this poem about Freya, and I just lost it. I was like, oh my god, because... You know, by that time, we had formed a bond mm -hmm. um, together, both Freya and I, and you and I. And um, so, yeah, I, I remember how I felt hearing your poem, and then I knew, like, I had to just run up and give you a hug, and, and uh -huh. I think I said, I had no idea. Uh-huh. You know? Um, it was a really powerful moment. Yeah. It was really sweet. Yeah, I thought maybe you did that on purpose. <laughs> you no. read that poem on purpose, no. but uh, finding out later it was just kind of random. I just happened to show up on the night that you read that poem, so. Yeah. Well, it was, I mean, that's, that was one of the best compliments that a writer could ever get. Uh, well, I think a lot, that a lot of people could get, you know, that, that it touched you so, so much. It had such an effect on you in a positive way. Mm -hmm. So... Yeah, it's the power of poetry, people. Start writing. It's real. Well, and that's another thing is, you know, me being the speech and language therapist, I'm always helping people communicate and express themselves. And then I meet you. And in return, like, you help me find my kind of poetic voice yeah. and jump out of my box a little bit to, you know, maybe get up on the mic once in a while. Uh -huh. and, and nervously express my, you know, stories on the mic. And so you, you've you kind of given me that voice of expression as well. Can we talk about different kinds of therapies for speech? Or, I mean, do you know much about alternatives? Is there, like, are there different camps? Do, ther do therapists have their, well, I do this method. Well, I do that method. You know, or... a lot of therapists do kind of tend to specialize in a certain way they do therapy. Um, you know, I, I think there's all, all different kinds of strategies for different diagnoses or, um, you know, different weaknesses. Um, <clears throat> you know, again, I, I tend to look at the person as a whole. 
you know, I never eliminate any option and say, I'm going to stick with this strategy and do this way the same every single time for every kid that has X disorder. Um, so really looking at more of the disorder maybe, or say, you know, a child has a hard time with past tense ED or using ING. And pretty much those are all my preschoolers because that's around the time that they're developing those skills anyway. Um, so really looking at the language skill or the speech skill um, and, and more looking at the, at the method of treatment, like looking at goals. Mm-hmm. Okay, if our goal is that they're going to use the past tense ED um, with imitation, they're going to just imitate me. The same sentence. Okay, so we reach that goal. Now, all right, they're going to use the um, past tense ED when I show them pictures with a little bit of prompting. Um, So really looking at it more from a goal perspective and what the child or the adult needs to focus on versus taking a a strategy Uh of therapy. But... um, I don't really think there's a a term or a definition of the therapy style, but I like to think of it as a as a whole person approach. You look at the big aspect. You look, you know, for an adult, they might say, "All I want to do is be able to read the newspaper again," or "All I want to be able to do is, you know, manage my medications at home." All I want to be able to do is order food at a restaurant. So, as a therapist who's listening to that I create the goals based on what they want Mm -hmm. and I think again that makes a big difference between a good therapist and and not is that you're really asking that person what do you want to do better Mm -hmm. you know or for a parent that may not know typical language development and they don't they they just know all my friends' kids aren't doing this. Or all my all my friends' kids are doing this and my child's not doing this. You know, mm-hmm. why? So really looking at more of the individual person and what they need. I've, I feel like I've learned so much just going to all of these therapies and sitting and watching mm-hmm. and, you know, being a part of it. And I've just... It just blows my mind, and you're you're really good at explaining, you know, why you're doing certain things. And I mean, I I haven't been able to see you in a year or two, a year, I guess. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah. And now Freya's in school, and so she's doing speech, and I'm not there. I don't know what they're doing because it's in school, and right. And that's one thing I love about my preschoolers is that the parents are are right there, you know. They get to see the therapy session, um, and, and again, like right in the heat of the therapy moment, I say, this is what I want you guys to do mm-hmm. at home, or look, she just used past tense ED, and we high-five across yeah. the table, and we make those little celebrations together, Yes, and we say, oh my gosh, she finally did it, um, you know, so th- I, I love having parents... Yeah. there for the sessions um I know I, I miss it I miss being a part of it because I do yeah it was I 
because then I knew what to do. Like now, I mean, I get a, a, a worksheet every week or whatever, you know, that says what they're working on and what mm-hmm. to do. But it's so different than when you're like in the room and then you both hear it the first time right. and you look, you know, I remember us looking at each other a couple of times, just like, oh, she did it. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I do miss that. Yeah. Well, going back to um, like having a single approach or a, a method or something, there's there's all different kinds of very uh, well-researched therapy styles and and ways to do things. And, you know, that's what gives us more of a scientific background in our practice is that we want to we want to use evidence based practice. We want to mm-hmm. use the most um you know validating treatment methods or standardized assessments mm-hmm. um so it gives some standardization to the way we deliver therapy um and then feeding and swallowing is such a specialized focus right. all in itself i mean you know and i think as a speech therapist that's one of the hardest things for us is that we specialize in so many different things. All the areas of speech, all the areas of language, feeding, swallowing, cognitive, mm-hmm. neurology, you know, voice. There's so many different fluency and stuttering. I mean, there's just so many hats that a speech therapist can wear. And, you know, some decide to specialize in oral motor and feeding, like our other local speech therapist, and do other natural, um, you know, more holistic or whole body movement and more like motor kinesthetics or aqua therapy or equine therapy. I mean, there's so many different additional factors um, you can implement with your therapy. It's... um, and again, it's just what are the goals and what are the family's desires and capabilities? They might not be able to participate in mm-hmm. these expensive oral motor, you know, aqua therapies. Um, <clears throat> what is aqua therapy? I've never heard of that. Pretty much doing therapy activities in the water. Oh, okay. Um, which is another um, specialty of another local speech therapist. Really? Mm-hmm. Um, how do you, okay, I mean, what, what does water have to do with speech? That's a great question, right? <laughs> what does anything in your life have to do with speech and language? Everything, okay. right? That natural context for communication or getting away from that sterilized room and mm. putting them on a horse or putting them on the floor, putting them on the grass, putting them in a pool. Those are such much much more natural context for children to use language than across the table. So again, it just goes back to the child or the adult and what, what works for that parent. And it's you know, going back to this, like, white clinical person across the table and your, you know, sanitized table and your your standardized toys in the barn and, you know, doing all these, all these pre-programmed activities all the way to how are you going to do speech and language therapy in a pool? You just have to see what works best for that family. Like, for me, it's difficult because... 
I'm a I'm a school based employee. Right. You know, you I run off a of school schedule. <laughs> you know, I eat, I eat school lunch with the kids sometimes. It's very standardized cookie cutter. Mm-hmm. You get your thirty minutes on every. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> versus in the private practice, it may be more. I'm going to an adult's home. And we're looking at their medication, or we're looking at their shopping list, or we're looking at trying to get their driver's license back, or get their um, get their financial um, conservatorship back. You know, more functional things, um, or you know, going and doing kitchen table therapy, where the child may not want to sit down and do the activity I've I've brought. So at that point, you are child-centered you're you know the child doesn't want to look at this thing that you have in your hand and you're saying look over here look over here (laughs) well you know as a child they're exploring and they're they're over here looking at the puppy they see out the window well a good therapist should direct their attention to what the child is interested in because you're going to get a lot more out of that child focusing on what they're interested in Instead of maybe a laminated picture of a doggy with the, your little magnet chips on the table. Right. Um, There's but a real dog outside. Exactly. And we can talk about its fur and its tail and do you hear it barking and, oh, we had a dog. What's our dog's name? And bringing it back into real life context. So, again, it's, it's this whole person therapy. It's never... <clears throat> It's never a cookie cutter therapy session for me. Um, and, and I hope I never look at it that way. Mm-hmm. Because I think it would take a lot of fun and the joy out of it. And I don't think it would allow a therapist to really connect. You know? Mm-hmm. That's one of the things I always appreciated about you is you definitely love what you're doing. You seem to enjoy it, and you really love the kid. I mean, at least with Freya, you know, you really had a connection with her, and you. So it was, and that was one of the terrifying things about going to, um, to, to putting her into <clears throat> mainstream school was knowing that I was sending her to a school where teachers signed up to work with typically developing kids. But yeah, I was just really terrified to get away from the world of of people that have chosen to work with kids mm-hmm. with issues and. Um, so yeah, I, I definitely, and you, you were very supportive of that whole process and, um, and being there and you were there that first meeting that we had with the school, right? Oh my that... gosh. Yeah. I was just thinking about that the other day too, in terms of like, you were my first fill in the blank. Um, <laughs> you were also my first transition meeting where I came to your home mm-hmm. and I had never done that before too. Um, so that was another good insight into, wow, you know, here's this family. They're allowing me into their home. They don't even know me. And I think we even like had so many people, we had to kind of sit on the floor and like little (laughs) stools and it would just, it made it more real, Mm -hmm. you know, like here's this family. I'm in their living room. You know, I know nothing about this child other than a name and a birthday and, here here you go like here's our goals yeah and then you were at the transition meeting for her to go into coastal grove and i remember you were in the room 
and I was terrified. I knew I was going to start crying at some point and just like, <laughs> I remember checking in with you to make sure you were going to be there. And I was so, so relieved that you were going to be there. And you also were a great advocate for Freya because I remember they were like, oh, we'll give her this. And you said, well, she needs this. So yeah. you were advocating for her when I was just too intimidated and... Well, and I feel like we, um, you know, on top of our friendship that developed over the three years that I saw Freya, that was another aspect of how you helped me be a better clinician is, is teaching a parent how to advocate, right? And mm-hmm. I would say, you know, these are your parents' rights. Make sure you look over your procedural safeguards. You know, this, these are things to expect when she gets into elementary school. And I think we probably talked about it for about a year before it even became (laughs) that transition and what to expect. And, you know, there were tears at the table thinking about what's going to happen when she goes to kindergarten. Mm -hmm. You know, so I think we had we had planned for that transition meeting for so many months that by the time it came, we kind of pumped it up so much that we were we were ready. You know, (laughs) I had given you all the strategies to you know, if you needed to put that fist on the table and say, no, not comfortable with that. I'm requesting this and, and to feel really confident and capable of advocating for your child. And, Mm -hmm. you know, like I said, that's been another area of how I've shift the way I communicate with parents. You know, I really try to step outside of this person across the table into just a person. Right. And and let a parent know these things are available to your child, but you have to speak up. Well, and it feels good when you are working with somebody that, that you get the sense that they're not, like, working for the state. They're working for your child. Right. Like, sometimes that is a difference. I can tell when I'm... And I'm in a room with a therapist or a doctor who was working for the, you know, who's working for the the man, yeah. <laughs> the machine or whatever. Yeah. And it's, and it's not about my child. And so you, like, I always felt like you were working for Freya, like you, you know, mm-hmm. so yeah, I always appreciate that. So I wanted to ask, um, other than like parents sitting there on their phone during therapy sessions, <laughs> I'm so glad you're going to ask me about this. <laughs> what is it that parents do that really like hinder the progress or really um, can, you know where I'm going with this question? Yeah. You know, I think it's an interesting question in terms of our um, environment here in Humboldt County. Um, we have a lot of low SES, socioeconomic status, um, you know, lots of drug use, lots of alcohol abuse. Um, you know, it's our—it's the culture of uh, humble as well as, you know, parents who may have drug abuse problems or struggling themselves or maybe even themselves have learning disabilities. But, and that's been a, that's going to be a big focus of this next year is how can I, as your therapist, really encourage my parents to get off their phone and join the session? And again, that's another thing that I always appreciated about you 
was that, you know, you were sitting there at the table, you know, you were, you were talking with us while the session was in place, you were encouraging Freya if she did something correct or did, did a good job, we both praised and, and kids need that, you know, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, it, our, our world is so, um, just involved with technology Mm -hmm. you know it's it's attached to us it's become a part of us and now the studies are being done in how that's affecting our children you know we never had the data and and now we're starting to gather data to to show kids aren't doing the same things that they used to do there's there's two different aspects to this one is the parent engagement Right, because the parents are also involved with the technology so much, mm-hmm. and the child is also involved with the technology so much. So, going back to the parent involvement, children learn language based on you talking to them. It blows my mind when people don't realize that, or like these first five commercials that you know, talk, read, sing to your baby. It's like haven't we always known that? <laughs> Don't, duh, yes, yeah. Mm-hmm. But there's the social aspect too that's changing in our children because there's there's this disengaged but present parenting going on. You have a parent who's in the same room mm-hmm. and may may even be talking to the child but they may be looking at their phone, they may have their back turned, they may be on a computer. Where is that eye contact? Right. Where's that facial expression? Where's that body language? Children need that social engagement. That's pragmatics. That's an area of language. You know, we have phonology and semantics and meaning and sentence structure. Well, pragmatics is the social aspect of language, that turn-taking, that eye contact, how close am I to my listener? Mm-hmm. You know, am I overriding the conversation and all I want to talk about is trains when clearly my partner is not interested in trains? <laughs> <laughs> Which happens a lot. Um, so this, this social pragmatic development of children isn't happening as well based on the parents' involvement in their electronic device, um, you know. So we're kind of we're kind of moving towards a robot parent, where we're just you know going through the motions and and not really really directing our attention to the children. And again, it's hard for me to talk that way because I don't have children, you know. Um, <clears throat> So I, I don't know that aspect of life. I'm sure, you know, that when I do have children, there will be a time where I just hand them something just so I can get a minute. I'm, I'm sure. <laughs> I understand that as a, as a busy, stressed, hardworking parent. I, I can't even imagine. Mm-hmm. But there needs to be time where parent child interaction has to be a priority Mm -hmm. no screen involved no distractions 
Your child learns language naturally from their environment, from talking to them. You know, the grocery store. Oh, look, there's a banana, banana, banana. And the child is looking and in the natural context. Oh, Mm. banana. We have some bananas at home. Do you want a banana when we get home? Monkeys like bananas, too. And, you know, children really learn that way. We have to engage with our Mm -hmm. children. Well, and they also, from my experience, are more well-behaved. Like, if you're looking looking for that time to get a break, if you need a break, the easiest way to get it, honestly, is to sit rather than, like, try and just, you know, be like, oh, Mm -hmm. just give me a minute, just give me a minute. Stop. Take the time. Play with them. Give them a good solid half hour, a good game, you know, whatever it Mm -hmm. is. And then say, okay, now can you go look at a few books? And they've had that, they've, like, they've had that experience they've had that connection filled for the moment so then they're they tend to be happier to go off right and do that and then you get that like guilt-free quiet time right yeah children children need that model and that prompting you know they they may learn how to play by themselves um but you know really they need that model to show them that and it kind of goes back to you know science and and development where they're in this zone of proximal development so the zone of proximal development means what a child can do independently and what a child can do with a little bit of prompting it's just right outside of their reach so what we're able to do is give them those prompts or those models so that they can stair step up one stage of development and master whatever skill it is you're teaching whether it be walking talking problem solving play imitation anything articulation you know they need they need that model they learn from us and it goes back to you know all these stories of you know maybe children who were brought up in the wild or things like that where these children never learned language or pragmatics because they never had that model you know so you know one we have the parents who are disengaged and two the the children are looking at screens mm-hmm. you know they i meet so many kids who know how to poke at an ipad way before they even know how to hold a crayon and I have children who have fine motor difficulties because all they do is index finger, poke, poke, poke mm-hmm. at a screen and and children don't know how to hold a crayon or chalk anymore. And that's how children are, are learning shapes and colors and textures. And, you know, so we have <clears throat> these children who aren't practicing language themselves because they have a screen that's flashing or talking to them. You know, we look at the same thing like TV. And again, it depends on, you know, what kind of programming your, your child is watching. You know, things like Sesame Street or Mr. Rogers, you know, those, those are great programs that explicitly teach these skilled 
you know, phonological awareness, language, alphabet. Social interaction. Yes. Acceptance of different cultures, manners, you know, problem solving with your friends. You know, kids really learn from those things. But again, communication is dynamic. You mm-hmm. have an adult and a parent and it goes back and forth like a ping pong ball, right? Turn taking. With a TV, it's all just being directed at the child. Mm-hmm. There's no back and forth. That's where the child's able to explain what he or she knows or respond. So even though they retain a lot of the information and it's it's important for them if they're going to watch TV to watch programs like that, there's no dynamic interchange between turn-taking and conversation and question-asking and... You know, Sesame Street does do a little bit of that where they kind of ask the child to say right. the letter after them. and they, But it's not this organic. It's not organic. Flow it's, right. human interaction. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The more you interact with your child, the more language they develop. And there's there's been studies that have shown that. And it goes back to more of like level of education and Mm -hmm. again, you know, socioeconomic status correlations. But if you have a parent who is using, you know, a diverse number of words versus a household that doesn't have well-developed vocabulary, they're not using diverse number of words, I mean... It, it's it's in charts. It's science mm-hmm. that the more language a child is exposed to, the more language they develop, and the less the less. That makes sense. It's too. It, I don't understand why. It makes beautiful sense. It's, yeah. So there, um, and I'm gonna plug my other podcast real quick, only because it's relevant. And actually, I'll just put the episode in the show notes, a link to it. But we interviewed a Waldorf educator, child psychologist, um, whom you met. He was at the meeting, Jeff Lau. Um, but he, so he came on and he was talking about the way Rudolf Steiner describes like development happening, like at kind of these seven year increments. And he talks about what happened, what, how the child is supposed to be developing, uh, zero to seven years like what is how the brain is developing from like the inside out and and all these ways well and part of this conversation was a talk they did at kindergarten class but he does talk about screen time and our kids Mm -hmm. how that's affecting them and how how it's basically keeping them from developing these certain skills like it's not so much about what they're watching although it is but it's also more about what they're not doing when they're watching the screen time so that like they're not getting that language or they're not getting that that opportunity to learn how to work through an an issue and yeah you know and and cognitive functioning is a big one too especially Mm -hmm. when you think of very early development when a child is you know manipulating objects and mouthing them and that's how they're learning about their environment and you fast forward a few years they're out in the grass or out in the dirt and they're playing with sticks and drawing designs and making patterns and you fast forward a couple years they're you know experimenting on the jungle gym and they fall and they get hurt well you know what that's 
that's something a child should be doing. That's trial and error. That's problem solving. Mm. That is cognitive development taking place right there. And every minute your child spends on a screen is another minute they are not engaging in their real environment and experimenting. Kids learn through experimentation. If you don't give them the tools to do that, they're not going to develop those skills or they'll, de they'll develop those skills much later in life. Well, and I'm under the impression that and maybe I'm wrong, but that there is something lost. Like if they don't get it within those first seven years or whatever, that, you know, you could partially learn it later on in life, but you'll never really have it integrated right. into who you are. If you miss, like there's kind of these windows of opportunity for mm -hmm. this certain kinds of development. And if you miss those windows, yeah, it's going to be hard. Know, and that's why kids have a lot harder times with social pragmatics and social problem solving and maintaining friendships, um, you know, if they don't experiment with um, with their peers or or with adults, they may not know how to solve social problems, you know, because they're on an iPad all day, and then when they go to school, and they get in a fight for not sharing, right. you know, it's because they haven't been exposed to turn-taking and sharing with other peers or other adults. Um, I find it more in the social aspect, especially, and, and just being polite to the people that you interact with. And or ha having that ability to even give them the attention. Right, or like <clears throat> taking another person's perspective. Okay, so are there is there any um, are there things that parents can do to? Well, I guess we kind of talked about that, like the talking to your child, interact with them, having those moments. Yeah, more natural interactions. Whatever you're doing, talk about it. I want parents to become a narrator of their own lives. And again, that's how that's how children learn language, you know, going back to the grocery store. Oh, look at the bananas. They're yellow. Oh, you like bananas? You mm -hmm. like bananas in your oatmeal. Right? We're expanding that. Here's this one thing. Kids learn, oh, this yellow thing equals banana. Banana. Okay, so they have that vocabulary word in their brain. Banana. Well, what we have to do is that model for them. Put it in context. Put it in context. When you're out at the store, look at the banana. Bringing it back to the home and you're in the kitchen and, oh, I'm cutting bananas. Are you ready to eat some bananas? Right. Do you want them cut in half? Do you want them whole? You know, really talking that through. It doesn't have to be a therapy session every minute of your life. However, you'd be surprised at what is very therapeutic every minute of your life if you just formulate it in a different way for your child. Mm -hmm. What makes a good speech therapist? You know, again, I think it goes back to the family or to the client. Um, so I'll start with an example of one of my adult clients. So I get a phone call one day and it's a lady explaining that her, um, friend has had a stroke and that she's about ready to be discharged from the nursing home. <clears throat> and, 
and it's going to be a while before they can set up home health speech therapy. And, uh, you know, I tell her that, you know, it's private pay and she understands that. And so I, I show up to this lady's house and, you know, we start doing a little bit of just informal assessment to kind of see where her language is at. And, uh, a week or two goes by and I'm asking her if the speech therapist from home health has come no, not yet, not yet. And so finally, about, I don't know, maybe three weeks later, they finally get the home health speech therapist to come visit her. And I follow up with her the next day after that visit, and I say, how did the, how did the visit go with the other speech therapist? And my client said it went horrible. Mm. I just didn't click with her. I didn't like her. She made me feel, I don't even remember the term that she used, but she didn't make me feel comfortable. Her communication style was, it just didn't feel right. Mm -hmm. And what this adult client did was she decided not to go with home health speech, speech and language therapy, which would have been covered by her insurance she decided that she would rather privately pay me to come see her. Um, You know, so I think it's just personality types click different. Again, you may have a therapist that has more knowledge in the oral motor um, aspect or a style that you might need. Or again, going back to the feeding and oral motor, there's a very, um, it's very specialized. So if your child is having more oral motor swallowing, then obviously you'd want that clinician who has that background and expertise in that area. Um, <clears throat> or like with me, I don't have a lot of experience with AAC, which is Alternative and Augmented Augmentative Communication Systems. Um, so you're using like a, a voice output device, and okay. a computer that's talking for you. You're pressing the button to request, you know, I want milk and the voice output system or the iPad or whatever computer system is, is saying it for you in a, in a robotic voice. Um, I don't have a lot of experience with that. And, um, You know, so that would be, again, if I knew another speech therapist who has that experience, who we have a great one in our area, you know, I let the parent know. And and I, this is another reason why I feel like as a therapist, it's okay to say, I don't know, I'm not sure, Mm -hmm. but I'll look into that. And maybe going back to your question, I think that is what makes a great therapist is or doctor, or provider, or any care provider, is being able to say as a person, I'm not sure, versus pretending like you know the answers, you know? Mm -hmm. Your ability to say, I'm not sure, let me look into that and I'll get back to you, is so much more authentic and genuine than sitting across a table like you know. Or giving the parent the knowledge of, oh, I know this other therapist who's really great at that. Let me, let me connect you guys, you know, versus me stumbling or pulling out my books, trying to 
brush up on whatever it is when, you know, I've got three-year-olds and 93-year-olds and all this information in my head, you know, when I know there's someone who may be a better fit, I, I'm not afraid to say, I think that this person will be able to help you more than I can. I know that we, when we first <laughs> talked about you coming on, we wanted to talk about some of the funny things that happen. <laughs> oh, speech therapy is so much fun. They're so... Uh, the kids make me laugh all the time. I mean, you can... It's a good day when you, like, slap the table or your knee laughing <laughs> over what a child has just said. The funniest moment with Freya was we were working on the sentence... I have a clock, but she could knock at the L sound, mm -hmm. and she just kept saying, I have a cock, I have a cock, <laughs> and just, <laughs> I remember sitting across the table from you, and just like, you know, both of us trying not to laugh, and Freya just, like, saying, just, I mean, she was saying yeah, it, yeah, she got she it all except for the L. Yeah, and uh, then, um... <laughs> God, that was so funny. Yeah, that was a funny moment to share with you across the table. And then after, I think I think we were probably crying a little bit. We were laughing so hard. <laughs> and then me, of course, being like, by the way, that's called cluster reduction. When you have a, a <laughs> consonant blend and they reduce the L, that's, you know, so I, like the therapist right. in me kicks back in to explain uh -huh. why she's doing that. But one of my other favorite ones... Um, from a few years ago was uh, the child was practicing again the L sound and on the card there's a prompt that says <clears throat> uh, the target word was lips okay so I'm, I'm reading the card to the child and I say to give a kiss you pucker up your and the child's supposed to respond with lips right so here I am reading the card. To give a kiss, you pucker up your grapes. <laughs> no, not grapes. Um, but, you know, it's just little things that kids say like that that make you smile throughout the day. Uh -huh. um, and I, you know, I always told myself I'd love to keep a book or a journal of all the funny things kids say throughout my day. But it just hasn't happened yet. But one of these days, I think uh -huh. I'll, you know, I'll write down what kids say. I think maybe one day I asked a kid, and this was even an older kid, you know, maybe fifth, sixth, seventh grade. And I said, do you know what a consonant is? And he goes, yeah, it's like a place, right? <laughs> like a continent. <laughs> right. And I'm like, oh my gosh, this child doesn't know what a consonant is. But he respond, he thought it was, you know, the word continent. Uh -huh. um, you know, so just little things like that. But those are such teachable moments too. And uh, sometimes I'll use a little envelope in their folders and it'll be like passwords. And these are like common words that come up in our therapy session that... The child might need to practice or um you know so sometimes I'll put certain things that come up in our session in their little envelope so that 
you know, in two years and they still have their same folder, I can remind the child, oh my gosh, do you remember two years ago? That word was so hard for you, but now Mm. you can say it. My speech therapist voice comes out during those little moments, but (laughs) they're just such uh, great teachable moments. And well, I think it's probably good to, if there's like some good natured laughing and of course. you know so it's not just like okay we're getting down to it this is what we're doing you know it can be kind of fun and playful right. and and we all you know kind of make mistakes of all the clients you've ever had who was your favorite pressure <laughs> okay. i just want you to say freya of course it was freya <laughs> my boyfriend actually makes fun of me because he if we're out and we see one of my kids, I come back after, you know, saying hi to them, of course. And I come back and I say, oh, that's one of my favorite little ones. And he says, you say that about all your kids. And I say, no, I don't. Aww. But he says, you say that all the time. <clears throat> They're yeah. all your favorite. Um, well, that's because you really enjoy what you do and you really connect with them. I think yeah. it's awesome. It's hard to say if I have one favorite but I have a handful of favorites and the reason they are my favorites is because they teach me something. I, and it may not even be a favorite student or a favorite adult. It may be a particular member of their family. I think one, when I hear that, an adult comes to my mind though. And it was a it was a male who had had a stroke, and he's your very typical kind of like Willow Creek mountain man, hippie farmer. And <clears throat> when I walked into his room, he's hooked up to a, a G tube, a peg tube, a feeding tube. Very very slow speech, very slow cognitive functioning. And he looked just like my dad and my brother combined it into one. And right away, I just thought, oh my God, like you remind me so much of my dad and my brother. And, you know, he's got this long beard and this long hair and his, his friend was with him at the time I came in. And so he had, you know, the opportunity to tell me a little bit about his friend and, you know, where he lives and he doesn't have access to you know, medical, and he had a stroke out on his property, and, mm. you know, as I'm working with this this older gentleman who just resembles my dad and my brother so much, we start to kind of form this bond, and, you know, we work our way up through getting him off the feeding tube by working on his swallowing, and, you know, he was, <clears throat> he couldn't have anything orally when I met him. Um, just because the risk of aspiration or choking and really working our way up through thickened liquid and puree foods mm. and then soft foods and, you know, still having the feeding tube in after months, but then gradually weaning him off the feeding tube. And I'll never forget, um, <clears throat> you know, and we worked really hard on his speech and language and cognitive functioning too. Um But I'll never forget, I was actually at the elementary school during the day doing my my day thing. 
and I get a mess, a missed call on my phone, and it's a message from him, you know, because we would text once he, once he was able to use his phone again, like we'd text and stuff, and you know, I'll see you later today at dinner time, and I mean, we became really close, and I had a missed call from him, and it was a message saying, guess what, Angela? I just got my feeding tube out and you're the first person I wanted to call and tell. And, you know, it's things like that where it's like, it makes you so happy as a therapist to see this person so frustrated by the fact that they're getting like puree food and thick and liquid again. And then I remember that we celebrated it. All he wanted was a hamburger. (laughs) So the the moment when I finally upgraded his diet to no restrictions or whatever, I brought him a hamburger and fries and we sat down together and we ate the hamburger and fries as our little celebratory meal. And, you know, it was just, it's things like that, that you'll never forget. So going back to one of my favorite adult male clients that I talked about earlier, Um, I had started this poem years ago when I had met him and fast forward another two years or so I met a, a an adult lady who really kind of inspired the poem to come out again and and add to um, so these were um, this poem was inspired by the two of those adult clients um, going through our therapy sessions and talking with them about their own stroke and So this is for them. This is called Stroke of Life. Your broken, misspoken words turn into water, downcast your cheek. Seeping through cracks of shattered concrete, no sought-out path, no direction to speak. To watch and listen as you speak and speak, yet say nothing at all, is an unimaginable phenomenon I may never fully comprehend at all. Snatching away your cognition, thought, personality, the ingrained language you speak. A stranger to your inner voice now, once used for daydreaming or quiet mental contemplation you seek. You never thought you'd have to relearn your childhood language capabilities, but now you sit in this hospital bed not knowing the word to the picture is keys. Torn pages of your dictionary where your expressive personality used to be. A shackled prisoner, bound brain and mouth, no table of contents, no index to see. But your small strokes of increased insight made me smile every day, and your life's misfortune reminds me of the taken-for-granites of the simple day-to-day. Loving you more and more as hours upon hours were therapeutically spent. For your life stroke, it gave me a sense of determination, purpose, empowerment. And your tears of confusion, anger, and frustration, in return, gave me tears of compassion and appreciation. But gradually I see you begin to speak your mind and find your inner voice once again. Small successes become smiles on our faces, on our hearts. A friendship begins. As we bond over your stroke of life, your words begin to describe feelings, fears, even ask a question. 
assisting your journey stroking through rough waters, my wooden oars for guidance, direction. Your stroke gave me a stroke of life, importance, and now I see. A lesson, a teaching, a conclusion, an epiphany. One of my most rewarding destinies, my heart's prompting my life's call. Unraveling the complicated mysteries of what happens when the brain breaks and falls. And although I've been trained to see the silhouettes of lighthouses ahead, small beacons in sight, on this journey we take, it's the knowledge you give me and your friendship that is the true reciprocated light. <laughs>